think we can find as a review for marks of a believer in this chapter. And I've used the letter D to help us remember. What is your doctrine? Are you involved in discipleship? Are you a disciple? How is your devotion? And are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit? For instance, doctrine, we see in chapter 4 and verse 2, that every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. You believe that that God was manifest in the flesh. The Word was became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus Christ is not a phantom. But then there are a couple other doctrinal truths. Verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. So again, it's another mark of a believer. A believer is one who God indwells and he in God. So the verse 2, believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And then the next chapter, so I'm spilling over into chapter 5, but whosoever believeth that Jesus is the, is the Christ is born of God. So John gives us five marks of those who are born of God, but then he gives other descriptions of a Christian than being born of God. So there are quite a few marks of a believer. And it goes, it goes with the theme that, that John wants you to know Wanted believers to know that they have eternal life, the assurance of salvation. And so this third doctrinal detail is that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, which, in, which entails the two previous doctrinal thoughts that He is both God and man. And this is, and the, so the Messiah would be Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah prophesied. And so doctrine is very important. People say, well, doctrine is unimportant or doctrine is, is boring. But doctrine, uh, doctrine is that which motivates our zeal, whatever it is, it is uh, uh, directing us to, certainly to the Lord who is great. And then discipleship says in verse 6, He that knoweth God heareth us. And the thought there is if a, a person who has right doctrine will continue in the faith and be a disciple. This is described as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who is listening to apostolic doctrine. He that knoweth God heareth us. The us, John is representing the apostles and the doctrines of Christ and, and the church. And so, a mark of a believer is he's remaining in the church. He's not just simply, I believe the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of the church, but, I, but is, is, is separated from that. No, a believer not only is known by that which he believes, but is known by his continuing in the faith 
as a disciple listening to the truth. So he's in the church. He's, he's in the midst of the preaching of the, and teaching of the word. <clears throat> and then verse 7, his devotion, his love for God and love for his brothers and sisters. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth, that is, both God and His people, is born of God. <clears throat> it's the third of five marks of those who are born of God, but it is the third mark of a believer in this particular section. And so you're known by your doctrine, you're known by your discipleship, but you're also known by your devotion, by your love, by our, our uh, sacrificial... Um, ways of, of uh, interacting with people. For no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. And the fact that a believer really has affection for the, another believer. Brotherly, sisterly love. Of course, siblings ought to love one another. Siblings ought not to be known by our rivalry, although that certainly is a test in our homes and in our churches. <clears throat> but God will help us to overcome. And we can, we can pass that test by the grace of God. And then in dwelling, chapter 4, verse 13 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us. In other words, hereby do we know that we're Christians because He hath given us of His Spirit. Now this is a little bit more subjective than the other three perhaps we might say, doctrine, discipleship, and devotion. But it's very hard to, to, uh, to not be aware of another person that dwells near you and especially in you. I know maybe it's a little bit more um, hard to unpack, at least to describe it in your life, but do you sense a, a, another person within you? you sense the Lord in you? For instance, do you feel guilty when you... Where, where does guilt come from? Does it just come from our conscience? Where, does, uh, where, do, where do the thoughts when we're reading the Bible come to us that help us to understand what it's saying, for instance? Um, you know, someone was talking to me earlier about that text, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And she said that her friend said... All he's saying is, today, like right now, I say unto you, uh, you will be with me in paradise. And she said, no, no, it's saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's not, it's obvious that he was talking to her, to, to him today. It's today you will be, so who helps us understand what that means when we're reading the Bible? Now, I understand we need one another, we need teachers for some of the more, Difficult passages, but uh, it's the Spirit of God that is motivating us to read, motivating us to pray. Is it just habit? Is it just someone's looking over our shoulder? Do we not sense the Holy Spirit within us? The Bible speaks of Him grieved and quenched if, we res if we're not listening, if we're, if we're disobeying. And don't we feel the frown of the, of the sacred person of the Trinity within us when we sin? And do we not sense the smile of the, of the Holy Spirit when we are walking with Him? We should be practicing the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's often so far, so much in the background, isn't He? And we, we speak much of the Father and much of the Son. But what about the Spirit? 
And John is reminding us that the Spirit dwells within us. And He's the one who teaches us doctrine. He's the one that, that, uh, that helps us maintain discipleship and pours out God's love and devotion for God in our hearts. And it's interesting how He's mentioned as the last of the marks here in chapter 4. So do you have those marks? John is not meaning this to, to uh, confuse us or to uh, discourage us, but he's saying, look, here are some marks that, that you're born of God, that you're a Christian. Just like we have marks that we're human beings. You know, we, we have a birth date. We have a, a birthmark. We have a, we have a belly button. We have parents. We have people that were there or have grown up to know who we are. We have marks of being uh, born or being a citizen of the United States. We have evidences. Well, do you have an evidence that you're a citizen of heaven? Here are some evidences, some marks. Well, we continue through uh, chapter 4 and focusing uh, on verse 14 and following where we read, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Then a wonderful statement. Where did John borrow that statement from? It shows us his humility, by the way. So we can associate something previous to what he he recorded the same statement in his gospel. Now, who was it that made the statement that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Samaritans. Chapter 4, verse 42. So John borrows and agrees with the description of Jesus by the Samaritans. And the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. But you see, John is actually quoting the Samaritans here as he says that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I think there's volumes in there for us to learn about being um, un, you know, unhypocritical and not being prejudiced and really appreciating when someone else has a description uh, that really fits, that really is biblical and, and you know, some nuance or some fresh way of, of speaking the truth instead of being jealous, say, you know, thank you, that's really an encouragement. How often are we acknowledging others who have been taught of the Lord and blessed by the Lord, uh, especially those that in the flesh we might feel that we are prejudiced and here is a statement that was made by Samaritans. And John uses the, that description that was coined by the Samaritans. Of course, we know they were moved by the Spirit to say such. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. Does that bother you as a Calvinist? Does that bother you as one who believes in election? He's the Savior of the world? Obviously, the word world is, is an object of His saving work. Savior of the world. John likes to use the word cosmos, the word for world, in his writings. Fifty plus times or so in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John. Twenty-three times in five chapters of 1 John. So really, fraction-wise, he uses it more often in 1 John than he does in the Gospel of John, doesn't he? Almost half the references in 1 John than the Gospel. 
Now, what is he, does he use the word world in the same way each time? No, it's one of those words that can be used in different ways. Um, it's used, let's say in, the, in this Gospel, we might say he uses it as a term for the Gentiles. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. And he is, Jesus is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, either he's saying we, our as in Jews, that he's writing particularly to the Jews here, and the whole world would include the Gentiles, or our in those who are in the visible church right now, and he's also the Savior of those who are not yet in the visible church that are living in the world. So it would be a world of sinners or just simply the world of Gentiles. But we know he uses the word cosmos to to describe sinners who are in the world. He tells us, and in particular, um, um, sinners that are vicious in their their, uh, lives. Love not the world. In that case, the world system but a world system that is led by a sinner, the devil, and, and sinners, the lust, of the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But if the world hate you, chapter 3 and verse 13, you know it hated me before it hated you. And so obviously he's talking about the world of vicious um, unbelievers. It's also used of materials in the world, things in the world. It says... If we, have, if we see our brother is in need of the world's goods and we don't help. So it's just speaking of that which is in the world that is, is, uh, is used for our necessities. But we could also say it's used of, we believe he uses it as the world of the elect. He says the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world in his gospel that he gave his his only begotten, his one and only Son. So it's used in several in, in several ways in the Word of God. But John says in verse fourteen that he he saw and has witnessed the truth that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So John is making a statement that he has actually seen the incarnate Son of God. In those statements, he's seen and he's witnessed that God the Father sent his Son, the Savior, into the world. Now, obviously, there were many eyewitnesses to not only the fact that Jesus was real, who was from Nazareth, but there were people that could, were convinced that this Jesus was sent from heaven, that he was the Son of God that became man. They, they not only saw him, but they witnessed, which is a word for <clears throat> they wondered at. Well, the word witness in this in verse 14 is they testified. So obviously they had evidences that caused them to testify that the Father sent this one into the world. So the, what, would have, what, what would have been the uh, evidences? They would have been witnesses to, of, his, of his mother, they probably didn't know his father. He probably died before um, he called his disciples. But they were able to talk to Mary, who could say that, that, that she was a virgin when she bore Jesus. 
and that uh, they could testify of the miracles that he performed, of the of the saved the salvations that he had executed, and so on. They were eyewitness. They had eyewitness accounts that he is more than a man; that he is the Messiah. Can we say that we we uh, bear witness that the Father sent the Son as the Savior of the world? Can we say we can say, well, I'm not an eyewitness, but I'm a heart witness. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dominated by my sin, but now the Lord has helped me to be dead to sin. He's made me dead to sin and alive to God. So although we haven't seen Him with our eyes, as John says in the, cha- in the first chapter, we have heard Him, He said. We never heard His physical voice. We never saw Him with our eyes. But we can say we beheld Him. And the word beheld that's used um, back in chapter 1 says you're, that, they're, that they're amazed at His presence. That they were struck by who He was. Not simply that they beheld Him with their eyes. That's another verb that's used of simply seeing something visibly. So John could say, physically, I saw him. That's the word we get a word optometrist. And that's in chapter um, 1. They physically saw him, like it says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was seen of Cephas. He was seen by James with their physical eyes after he rose from the dead. But there's a spiritual seeing that's used in chapter 1, verse 1, where it means they perceived Him. Not just that they saw Him with their eyes, they perceived Him with their hearts. Spiritually, it was more than just seeing Jesus of Nazareth. They saw Him as the Father's Son who was sent into the world. And then the third synonym is the word behold, which is the first word for seen in verse 14. We have seen. The word is behold. We beheld Him. That's the word to wonder. We wondered and we witnessed. That's what He's saying. We were affected first by the incarnation of the Son of God. The truth that He was sent into the world. And we're now witnesses. John had to be born again just like Peter and all the other disciples. And just like Mary. Mary was a Christian. Do you believe that? She was saved. When the wise men came, they bowed down and they worshipped Jesus, not Joseph and Mary. So we may we have not seen him with our physical eyes, but we have perceived, have we not, that God sent his son into the world to be the Savior of the world? And have we not wondered at Him? I wonder as I wonder. In other words, you put all these together, John was saying, we have fully seen and perceived, recognized and wondered at the truth that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Hands down. We're qualified witnesses. We're not only eyewitnesses, we're heart witnesses to Jesus Christ. These are important matters that need what needs to be witnessed, which means what needs to be born as a witness to the world. That the Father sent the Son 
and that the Son is the Savior of the world. Those two important things. The Father sent the Son. Jesus Himself said, I came from heaven. I came to do My Father's will. That speaks of His deity, that He had a pre-existence before His birth. And He's... God sent His Son, His incarnation, to be the Savior, that's salvation, the Savior of the world, to cause people to be born again. Not only Jews, but Gentiles and Samaritans, right? Isn't it interesting that as John quotes what the Samaritans said about Jesus, that He's the Savior of the world, who was sent to Samaria after Philip was challenged to leave a revival to preach to one person. Peter and John, this John, were sent to Samaria to verify what was happening and to continue to see souls saved. But what a challenge that was. I mean, it's one thing to be sent to a revival. Wouldn't you love to be sent to Nineveh? Jonah wasn't. But wouldn't you love to be sent somewhere where you knew God was working? But how would you like to be in the midst of a revival and the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, I want you to go talk to one person in the desert. And he doesn't even return to Samaria. He goes up and lives in Caesarea and is content to be, get married and, and to see three, is it three or four, four daughters who came to know the Lord and were witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's in Acts 8.14 where Peter and John went to Samaria. Just so much that you can connect as you compare other writings of the same men that you're reading like John later on in his life. So another assurance booster. John could say, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 15, is truly a Christian. He's a Christian. The word confessed, by the way, is someone who is in agreement with the truth that is explained to them. And it's important to confess our truth, not just to believe it in our hearts, but to confess that Jesus is the Lord. We have confessions of faith. But do you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus has come in the flesh. We ought to confess verbally as well as having written confessions of these truths. Now it says here, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, we would anticipate him to say is born of God or knows God, but he uses a, a different thought. If, you're, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I'm not just saying with your mind, because you know, you on paper you can say Jesus is divine, Jesus is God. But we're talking about someone that is in agreement with his heart and is confessed with his mouth. Now it tells us something different about who we are. We're, we're those in whom God dwells and in whom we dwell in God. That's, that's a, a very difficult nuance, isn't it? It's talking about reciprocal union, reciprocal communion with God. The Lord Jesus used the illustration of the vine and the branches when He spoke about indwelling. He used many different illustrations of our union with Christ. Marriage. He used the marriage illustration. We're, we're in, in uh, 
um, you know, a spiritual union. He used, you know, vital, uh, vi- our vital union, vine in the branches. He used the, the bodily illustration, the, bo- the head and the, and the members. You can't cover the gospel experience with one illustration. You know what I'm saying? There are many different ways in which we, we are able to try to get to our experience as a Christian. So, how do you unpack God dwelleth in Him and He in God? Well, similar to what it says um, with, about the Spirit, He's given unto us. In other passages where the Spirit is in us and will be with us, we've got to kind of wrap our mind around the union. I mean, there are many different aspects of the Gospel. You have the aspect of regeneration, new life in the Gospel, adoption, the privilege of the Gospel, right? Uh, Conversion, the experience of the Gospel. But you have union. What would we call that? Union is is the... uh, uh, I can't come up with a word yet. Union is your... Your, your life in the gospel, or your your communion with God in the gospel, assurance is your is 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 your is your joy in the gospel that you that you're assured you're going to heaven. Glorification is your the consummation of the gospel when you go to heaven. All different kinds of of uh, truths that the gospel of Jesus Christ unveils. As we read His Word and 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 understand what we've experienced in our experience and shall experience in the Lord and in 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 the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but God dwelleth in Him. That's that's just awesome, isn't it? God dwells in us. It means what it says. He's in us. The Spirit of God dwells within us can't touch him you can't see him but you can sense his presence and you can believe when he says that he's within us and we are within him it's just that's a mystical union how else can you describe it but it's it's real Christ in you the hope of glory it's real and we have known from the very beginning, John's saying, when we were converted, and we have known and we have believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in us. So John is saying this indwelling of God is evidenced by love. Knowing God loves us and we love God. And we love one another. And this love has to be perfected, John says. Herein is our love made perfect. How is it perfected? And how do we know when our love becomes stronger and more consistent? It's when we become bold, when we are bold toward the day of judgment. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Boldness in the day of judgment. What a a statement that is. I mean, how often we, when we think of the day of judgment, we become afraid. When you discuss the day of judgment with an average individual, it's a, it's a terrifying thought. They want to pass on to something else. But believers sometimes, we're like that. The day of judgment scares us. 
But the Bible says there's no fear in love, but perfect love whips out fear, casts out fear. It's it hurls it away. I mean, if you really love your parent and your parent loves you, when the day of judgment comes, when we are due punishment and chastening, we're not going to be afraid of losing our relationship. We're going to be afraid of a little bit of pain. And there is that aspect of, I want to be able to appear at the day of judgment without my works being burned up. The Bible talks about the fact that we will be judged according to our works. But we're not going to be afraid of hellfire. We're not going to be afraid of a, of a broken relationship. But fellowship, yes. And, and rewards are definitely what are put before us so often in God's Word. Over 20 times in the New Testament. If God dwells in us and we in Him, and that's permanent, that is security. Like what Mike Barrett said about our union, Christ dwelling in us. He says, it's our security in our association. He uses the illustration that when he was in high school, he was a skinny, I think he called himself a skinny runt, and he played musical instruments. So he wasn't a jock, he didn't play sports, but... And so he was, he was, he had bullies always after him. Bullies on the bus and bullies in the, in the, in the halls. And he, and he said, I need to, I need to become associated with people that can deal with bullies. And so he, he got the favor of some of the bigger sports players. So he said his association with these bigger sports guys who, whenever the bullies came along, said, you touch him, I'll touch you. And he said he was strengthened and protected by his association with stronger than the enemy. And he's saying this is what union with Christ is. Our association with Christ causes us to be protected from all of our enemies because he defends us. And it's a very good illustration, isn't it? But and that's the sense here that God dwells in us and we in God. Who can touch us if God be for us? Who can be against us? He's going to protect us. And how, is, how are we protected? By our association. We're in Christ and He is in us. Mutual union is often described in the Bible. 1 John 3.24, for instance, it says, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. So you often have verses like Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27 and Colossians 3.3. Other passages that talk about our association with Christ. Dr. Barrett said it this way, our union is representatively, He's the second Adam. Our union is spiritually that by His death and resurrection. Our union is vital. It's vitally. He gives the food and life illustration. I am the bread of life. And 
the, the head and the body and the vine and the branches and the fruit, that were the fruit of the Spirit in us. Our union is intimate. He uses the marriage analogy. And he finally says our union is eternal because it was before the foundation of the world and it's, we're forever to be with the Lord, we're told in 1 Thessalonians. So, we ought, I think we underestimate the aspect of the Gospel that's called our union with the Lord. It's love which brings the union. The love which God has for us and in us. He says, we ourselves have known this love when we were regenerated and continually knowing this love with our fellowship with God. And we have believed. Notice, love and faith again. It's not just love. And it's not just faith. It's love and faith. We have, we have known, that's love, and we have believed. So we're saved by faith and we're also sanctified by faith. We, have, we know the essence of love because God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. And he's saying now, love ripens as you grow in Christ. Love marinates, to use that cooking illustration. What's the result of love that matures day by day as we pray for more love for God and we sense His love for us? What is the result? The ultimate. We're all going toward that day. Picture yourself on a conveyor belt. It's taking you whether you want to go or not. And if you're in an airplane, it's taking you faster. You're, somebody said you get older uh, on, when you're away from gravity. Well, I haven't been on an airplane lately, so I must look younger than somebody that's my age that's on an airplane all the time. But what was I trying to say? That we're all getting there. We're on a conveyor belt. You like conveyor belts? or What's in the airport? It's a, it's a moving walk, a sidewalk, right? What do they call those things? A people mover. You know, it's more exercise if you walk along the side of it, but it's neat to stand on that thing. Sometimes if you don't really, you can fall easily if you don't anticipate how fast it's moving. You get on that thing and you're, you're going like crazy. And you know, that's the way we're, we're heading toward Judgment Day. So where should we be spiritually? Afraid? Biting our nails because we don't know what's going to happen at Judgment Day? No. John addresses it. He, he faces the, the future head on. That's the wonder of the Gospel. The Gospel can let you face the future. Face the next heartbeat if it doesn't happen. Face the next day if it doesn't come. You and I need to live as if we may not be here the next heartbeat. There is no fear in love. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. Now what does it mean? Because as He is, so are we in this world. I think there's at least the truth as He is secure, as Christ is permanently had victory over sin and death and hell, and is secure as he is at the judge at the at the right hand of God. So in Christ we are as secure as Christ is. No one will dethrone him. Is he afraid? In Christ, 
perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. Well, what does that mean? The word torment has the, is, means the fear of punishment. In other words, somebody who's robbed, they're, they're afraid of a blue light flashing nearby. They're afraid of the police. They're afraid of getting caught. So they're going to hide. They're afraid of judgment. They're afraid of getting arrested and brought before the uh, authorities. What a statement. The day of judgment. I mean, that's enough to put, you know, to to uh, cause all the hair on your neck to stand up. The day of judgment. Nobody wants to think of that. It's a specific event. You see that the day of judgment. Now it's used, there are different ways in which the Lord speaks of this day. He calls it the judgment in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Six times in the Scriptures, it's the day of judgment. In Jude 6, it's the judgment of the great day. It's also used of the word judgment. The word judgment by itself. In Revelation 14, it's the hour of His judgment. In verse 10 of chapter 18 in Revelation is thy judgment. I mean, these are, these are solemn thoughts that there is a day coming when every knee will bow, when everyone will stand before God. But if we sense the love of God and been saved and we love Him, that, that fear, that, that terror of standing before God subsides because God is no longer our judge, He's our Savior. He's our Father. He's the Lord of our lives. And He's saying, if, if, if you and I are afraid of judgment, our, our love is immature. We don't love the Lord like we should. We don't trust Him. That Jesus took our sins and our pains. Now we might say, oh, I'm not afraid of, of standing before God per se. I'm afraid of of not being ready to die, of my works being imperfect and, and not having enough works before God. Well, there's something to be said of that, the concern that we are fruitful. And we ought to pray that way. We're in a new year to pray, Lord, don't let me lose what has been wrought, but that I might receive a full reward. And help me now to, to live with that day in mind. But certainly, not to be afraid of God's prison and God's punishment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. But John's saying, we love Him because He first loved us. Our love is being perfected. And we are casting out fear. Servile fear. We fear the Lord. We reverence Him. But we aren't afraid of Him because... He has come to us as our Lord and our Savior. And John just keeps coming back as we close out this chapter to the mark of a believer in having brotherly love. He comes right back to it again. You'd think that it ended here and started chapter 5, but he circles around once again. Now, can't leave this subject, brethren. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, 
How can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him. It's not my pet peeve. He's the one that's that's re-emphasizing this. And this is why I keep writing this. That he that loveth God, love his brother also. Let that be the, the litmus test at the end of the day. We have other tests, other evidences. But this is a huge test. Because we're with believers all the time. And do we love one another? Do we forgive one another? Do believers matter in our lives? It's important that we're bold in the day of judgment. But it's also important that we're not lying to ourselves. Oh, I'm bold, but, but I don't love my brother and sister. That's a, that's a dece- deceptive confidence. But he's saying it's supported. Your confidence will be supported. And God will reiterate this and God will comfort you in this. That if you love your brothers and sisters... This is a definite mark of being a believer. Your love will hurl out that servile fear. The word is to cast out. It's used of casting your bread to the dogs. Thrusting Paul into prison. They pushed him in. They shoved him in. And those who are cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 15. If we fear, have this servile fear, it's a foreboding of punishment. And believers ought not ever to have a foreboding of punishment. But what he's saying is, love has the reward of a foreshadowing of acceptance. Love is saying, I will be accepted when I die. Christ died for me. I have the marks of a believer. I love the brethren. There's nowhere else I want to be on the Lord's day if I'm well than in the house of God. He's saying that love, unlike that servile fear, has a foreshadowing of heaven and not a foreboding of hell. John has a lot of content packed into these texts and I hope that we're, that we're uh, getting a meal each time, though I feel like there's so much. There's a buffet here and I can only eat so much as I read through First John, five chapters, but so much there to comfort the believer and to cause concern for the unbeliever. Let's pray.